welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance in Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else where this podcast is being listened to. We also have listeners in Azerbaijan, Tanzania, India, Jordan, and South Korea. At time, the conversations on our podcast may be more relevant to the general public. We have had some great interviews with parents and patients telling us about their experience and learning about how the healthcare system works for families in our state. At times, though, our conversations may be more relevant to the medical providers. Today's discussion is one of these, but I guarantee that if you aren't a provider, you will still learn something and really enjoy today's guest and the stories that he is about to share. I also need to warn everyone that the topic we're going to explore today is a bit on the heavier side, but we are also going to figure out how we work through the emotions that come with the job we have and the stories we encounter. Today's guest shared such a wealth of information on the topic of grief that this episode will be a two-part series. Today, we will learn a little more about our guest, hear a couple of stories on his own lived experience and the impact of grief on not only ourselves, but those we work around and the parents of these babies. Speaking of our guest, let me introduce him to you. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is happy to welcome Dr. Ryan McAdams to our show today. I've known Ryan for about six months now, but we recently spent some time together in India helping some hospitals there develop and put into place a quality improvement project. As I learned, he's a fascinating guy, and a neuro audience would love to hear from him. So without further ado, Dr. McAdams is the Neonatology Division Chief and a member of the Division of Global Pediatrics in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. After his fellowship training in the Air Force, he and his wife lived in Okinawa, Japan, on a naval base for three years. They then moved to Seattle, Washington, where Ryan worked at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital for eight years before coming to UW-Madison in 2016. I got to meet his wife and two children over Zoom while in India, and I can tell you that they are the center of his world, but he is dedicated to taking care of babies everywhere. As a neonatologist, his goal is to improve neonatal outcomes globally by partnering with people to promote education and practices that lead to better neonatal outcomes. He's also involved in numerous areas of research, including such things as preventing perinatal brain injury, using things such as artificial intelligence and machine learning to enhance outcomes, and virtual reality educational simulation training. Dr. McAdams, welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. One of the things that so intrigued me as we got to know each other in India was your work around the topic of grief. For audience, you're going to learn in a few minutes why Ryan is a true renaissance man. 
his work in grief has really been something TQC has been focusing on recently because we've been sharing educational information with providers on how to identify and care for patients, whether they are in the OB office or in the NICU who are struggling with depression, anxiety, or grief. But Ryan's work has really focused on how we as providers also struggle with these things and how they can impact us. So Ryan, can you share a little bit more with our audience about your career and the journey you've been on as a neonatologist? Yeah, my interest in neonatology began in my residency. And I was working in the Air Force, but I was at a split program. So I was at UC Davis with a really great group of folks. And it was a tough rotation, so long days. That was before any kind of duty hour restriction. And it was a tough rotation. And I I thought, you know, this is something very interesting, working with these families and these precious little babies. And so that was, I think, my first insight into that area of medicine within pediatrics. Fortunately, one of the neonatologists I worked with spoke to my dad and encouraged he said, Ryan, this is what he should be doing. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of encouragement. Sometimes the right person saying something to kind of nudge you in that direction. And then during my chief year, I moonlighted as a neonatologist, got more experience. And then, although I liked a lot of things, decided, let's try this. And once I committed, I, I really loved it. I've been an active learner my whole career. I feel like there's still so much I need to learn and, and want to learn. And it's been a fascinating field. I mean, taking care of precious little ones and working with her families is a real privilege and an honor. So my career has taken me through the Air Force to Japan, like you mentioned. And then I had eight amazing years in Seattle, learned a ton with the people I worked with, amazing nurses and doctors, and just saw a wide variety of babies with different types of diagnoses. I, and I got to do ECMO and dialysis and all these things that are technologically fascinating, but help bring health to babies. And then I came to Madison and in a new role for me as a, in a leadership role, got to experience other aspects of medicine and still working with a fantastic group. And so I'm, I feel very blessed just for the journey I've had, but really just treasure that time at the bedside with the babies and the families. Yeah, what was it about being at the bedside and seeing what our families go through and then what the nurses you work with and about the physicians that you're around led you to begin to explore grief? A lot of it, when you're learning medicine, you're aware of some things, but when you actually experience it, when you see someone die or they're suffering or they're, you see a parent who just feels crushed due to some news they received, that experience is very like, it broadens your view of the world and just your role in that world. And, and I think when I did global health too, when I did work in Sub-Saharan Africa and Mongolia and Cambodia, you see kind of death and disease at a different level. So a lot of, a lot of struggle, a lot of hardship, you know, so you come back with this mixed emotion of gratitude for what you have, but also wanting to help more. And, and I think those experiences continue to kind of let me explore how people deal with difficult news and loss. And then in my time in Seattle, because of how sick some of the babies were, you dealt with grief a lot. You had a baby die sometimes once a week or more. And getting close with these families, it's just natural that you develop a relationship with them. You, I think, become like an extended family member where you're one of the few people that has the privilege to see their child outside of maybe grandma, grandpa, or some immediate family members. And so there's this close-knit circle who's aware of this baby, and you're one of those people so when you have when you develop a rapport and develop trust, it's just normal that you're going to be invested in that child and their outcome. So when something bad happens to them, 
whether that's a brain bleed or they get sick with sepsis or they die, it, I think it, it impacts you in a real way. And so just having experienced that over and over throughout my career, you realize how it does impact the nurses or the respiratory therapists or your the trainees or the, your colleagues. And so it became a topic that I wanted to be more comfortable with so that I could do a better job, hopefully in those moments, being supportive to the families, but also stay resilient through the process so that you can appropriately work through that grief, but at the same time, keep doing your job at top level. Yeah. I mean, I noticed one of the things that you mentioned was what we do here in the United States is so high tech. We've got hemodialysis, we've got ECMO, we've got things like that. But then your global work has led you to places that does not have that technology. But grief is the same. Whatever setting or culture that you're in, you're going to be dealing with some type of grief. And it may be expressed in a different way in that cultural situation. But whether it's a provider and whether it's a patient, we all grieve some way. Can you share some story with our audience about maybe a pivotal event either here in the U.S. or in some of your global experiences that you said, you know, this is something I need to explore and educate people about. Again, as, as you mentioned, we as, as teachers, we're really good <laughs> at teaching people how to do hemodialysis, ECMO, the super high-tech stuff, run the ventilators. But I don't think we do a really good job of educating people how to deal with grief. What was it that turned you on to this? Yeah, I have a lot of stories. I can Maybe I'll provide one from the U.S. and one from when I was in Uganda that illustrate some of the concepts I think of, well, like you mentioned, grief is universal and love is universal. And I think, you know, they're tied into that. If you love someone and you care about them and something bad happens to them, it's normal to, to grieve that. And so I think we all share that despite how disparate some of the situations are in a high income versus low income country. One of the events I had while I was in Seattle, we had this little girl. Her parents have allowed me to share her name before, so I know they won't mind. Her name was Sophia. And she was at our delivery hospital, and she'd been there for a while. And she was born early and had been on a ventilator and was very sick. And she'd started to get better in some respects, but was still having a lot of issues with her feeding. And her liver wasn't functioning properly. So she got sent to our level four hospital. And... Someone had mentioned to the parents, I think when they got there, you know, she's got like a 50-50 chance to survive. So these parents were wanting more than anything to have a healthy little girl and they're bombarded with a lot of negative news and daunting news. And when I came on, I met the family and I, I really wanted to sort out what's going on with this little girl. I wanted to figure out what was causing her liver to be abnormal and, and her not to thrive. And so I made it a priority to really like read up on things and look into things. And in the meantime, I'd spend time with the family every day and I could see how desperate they were for answers. Well, I determined this baby had this condition, which is rare, called gestational allomune liver disease, which there can be antibodies from the mom that can attack the liver essentially of that child and cause liver dysfunction. It's not the mom's fault. It's just something that can happen. So this wasn't a real common diagnosis at the time. And, and when we sorted it out, I actually contacted the world expert and talked with him and he agreed that this is what it was. And we initiated treatment, but it was unfortunately too late for the treatment. And so the baby didn't have a response like she may have had we done this earlier. 
During this time though with Sophia, just spending time with the family, I just witnessed the love this family had, the time they spent in the hospital, the impact of just things in the ICU. Just, I remember one day the, the power went out just briefly for seconds. The mom was walking across the NICU and literally like running towards the room because her daughter's on a ventilator. And in her mind, I'm sure she's worried like this, if there's no power, her baby's going to die. And when the power went back on, the mom literally collapsed on the floor. And it was just, it made me realize like how impacted they are by all the alarms and all the things going on in our ICU. Well, I remember when this mother would sing somewhere over the rainbow to Sophia. Sophia's on the ventilator and she's covered in tubes and wires and the mom's in there and she'd be singing to her. It was such a beautiful thing to witness. Well, we recognized that Sophia was not going to survive. Her body was failing her. And through a lot of tears and discussion with family, I, I, I think it was like in the middle of the night, I came in and was there to be with the family. And it was the mom sang somewhere over the rainbow again, which is like, you know, you're, you're fighting back tears watching this beautiful scene as this baby's dying. And it was such a privilege to be present for this and to be with their immediate family and to be a shoulder to lean on or to be able to give them a hug. These are moments when medicines failed. You know, we have no more treatments, not, nothing I can do to save this baby other than just be there and be present, which could be in silence or maybe some kind words or just like a, you know, a, a shoulder to lean on. And then that story was really special in that later, the day after she died, when that afternoon, the parents saw a double rainbow, which had significance to them considering the song that mom always sang. And so that's actually something I've was able to stay in touch with his family so that because we learned the diagnosis for the mother, she was able to get treatment for her next pregnancy and they've been able to have two healthy kids, which is amazing. Wow. They've never lost memory of Sophia. Sophia is still a significant part of their family, even though she's not physically present. And so when I would see a double rainbow or a rainbow, in Seattle, it rained a lot, so you had a lot of opportunity for rainbows, I would snap an image of it and send it to the mom as a way to let her know I was thinking about Sophia and her and staying in touch with them. And I actually did a painting of the mom holding Sophia and I entitled it rainbows to remember. And it had a lot of significant elements of like the, of their story in the painting, but I, I sent them the painting. It was something, you know, this was a unique situation where I got close with this family and was fortunate enough to stay in touch with them. And I never wanted to forget Sophia. So I wanted to paint her and solidify some of the memories and the joy too, that because, you know, she, her life was brief, but she mattered, right? And she made an impression on me. And obviously I want to give to the family in a way. So that was a, that was an example where like the grief of that family, which has continued, I was able to really get some insight into that and share with that, not just in a short window, but ongoing. One other example would be when I was in Uganda, I was there for like a week. It was a Friday. I was supposed to leave that day. And the nurse walks in two mothers holding blankets into this ICU that we have over there. And the mothers looked very stoic and they sat in a chair and I walked up to both the moms and I introduced myself and I peeled back the blankets and there's these little premature babies in each blanket. And I was right away like, okay, wow, like these are fragile babies. They're very premature. I was guessing the one was maybe 27 weeks. The other one was maybe 29 weeks. The one mother had delivered the day before in a village. And so like had walked in and I don't even know how she got to the hospital. 
but this baby would needed ICU care, but miraculously is still breathing, but was gasping and not looking good. And we had just introduced bubble CPAP into this unit. So I was able to put the, actually the smaller baby, but who I think was doing better on the CPAP. And then the other baby, I, I split up tasks. I had the one nurse go with the first baby. And then I went with this baby who was gasping. And this was a young 15 year old mom. Well, the grandmother was involved and she was being blamed by the father for having given some herbs to the mom that had caused all this. So there was a lot of like social stuff going on that was probably additional stress for the mother. And, you know, the mother was there and we actually took some photos. We had a Polaroid so we could give her some photos of her baby. And that baby was gasping and I knew it was not going to make it. So I spent the time with the mother that afternoon and the baby died that afternoon. And this poor mom, she's 15. She's all by herself. She's wearing this blue jacket. She's wearing flip flops. And I was just like, I'm standing next to her and I don't know exactly what is culturally appropriate, but I as a human being and someone who cared, I was like, the natural thing to do would be to give this mom a hug. We're standing over her baby and she's touching it. And so I, I said, okay, I'm going to just put my arm around her. And, and she just buried her head into me and just started weeping and was crying. We just sat there for minutes, just holding each other and being in the moment. And when I turned, all these mothers behind me, like a wall of mothers were standing up watching us. And I was like, and I, my hope was in that moment, they saw like, it's okay to be caring and compassionate to another human being in these circumstances. And hopefully that's right in any culture to be there when someone needs you, their baby just died. They're totally overwhelmed with grief. They've got all this social stuff going on. And to not put my arm around her, it seemed like just the, I didn't want to risk what that would be. So that to me just showed me like, you can trust some of your instincts when you care about someone or be loving and being still appropriate and professional, but also being there to help them through that moment that I also painted her later on just to kind of capture that moment and still wonder like, how's that mom doing now? Whatever happened to her? And I think those are some of the question marks you have. You wonder, but hopefully at least with her memory for that moment, it provided some mm -hmm. light or something positive. Yeah, so I think our audience is figuring out while I called you a renaissance man earlier with your painting. And we'll, we'll get into that in more in just a second. But let's actually define provider grief for our audience. I mean, yeah. these two stories you've told are, are super powerful stories. They obviously mean a lot to you. You grieved through this experience and you've got an outlet for that. But how might other providers, whether it's the bedside nurse who's been with that family for days or weeks or months, or it's the physician who's trying to figure out or work through a different diagnosis, how might we experience grief and not even realize it? That's a great question. Because if you think of what's a definition of grief, and I think of it's a feeling of sorrow over a loss. And when we think of death, that's about as extreme a loss as you're going to get. But it's also can be a feeling of sorrow in the sense of like in the ICU, let's say a baby has a head bleed or something else. There's a, there's something bad that's happened to this little newborn who can't speak, who can't talk to you who's lying in this little incubator, but that's going to impact them in the future. So it might be like, well, all these questions of, well, this thing that just happened, which may not cause death in the moment, but it might affect that child's ability to run or to play or to see or to hear or to do some things. And so you witness the parents struggling through that and asking questions, maybe silently, but maybe they're more open about it. But you also feel that loss as well. And, and it's not your child, so you're going to experience it differently, but you still feel sad that this happened because you know it has an impact. And you have this medical knowledge of what that may mean. 
So this added insight into like some of the implications of some of these things. When a baby actually dies that you've cared for, you know, I think there's these feelings we go through, like, did we fail? What did we do wrong? You question things. What could we have done differently? Maybe we tried our best and we still, that wasn't good enough. So the parents, I think, have a feeling of helplessness. And I think sometimes in those scenarios, even if you know, you know the things to do medically, at the end of the day, the baby died. And so you also feel a little bit helpless or inadequate. So I think you have to wrestle with some of those feelings and still go on and then take care of other kids that day or later on. But I think what the way that those feelings can manifest, especially if you've been really close with the family or maybe experienced a lot of that in a period of time, is that can be overwhelming. And I, I think it can lead to feelings of doubt or uncertainty, feelings of loneliness. You maybe even get numb to certain situations. And so I think absolutely, I think nurses and providers are impacted by this and they may need a break. They may need some time to reflect or recuperate because this can be overwhelming just to put that aside and keep going. And I think you need to be able to do that to a degree, but you don't want to do that so much that you're not allowing some of that grief and emotion because that's actually a healthy thing. So it's this, we're in this weird world sometimes in the ICU where you kind of, and we've all had this happen, right? Where you had something really tragic happen and minutes later, you got to go greet a new family to the NICU and you can't yeah. tell them just what yeah. happened. You kind of got to move forward. And that, that juxtaposition in such a short time often feels a little surreal. And I think you need to later on go back and say, well, let's process through that. But you have to be thoughtful of how did that maybe impact the resident or the medical student or the fellow or the nurse, other folks who are part of that care team and check in with them. But it absolutely, I think, can affect them. It, not everybody's going to have a sign that says, this is how I'm doing. Just because I'm doing okay, maybe that medical student or the resident's not. Yeah, I know hearing you describe this, I know... <laughs> I guess I've been experiencing grief more than I, I realize because I've had periods before when I've had difficult patients. I've had things that have I've woken up in the middle of the night for sometimes several days. Poor sleep quality, lack of appetite, just trying to put these emotions into a box so I, I really don't have to deal with them. But it sounds like I need to. And other well, people that yeah, may be <laughs> realizing that what you're saying <laughs> describes them needs to realize these emotions and deal with them as well. What about with parents? What can we do as providers to support parents better in these situations where we've established these relationships with them, whether it may have just been hours or days, weeks or months, like we'll sometimes deal with in the NICU? What can we do to help support them? I really appreciate you asking about the parents because it's they're so important in this process. And maybe if I could just step back a second and let's think about what that's like for the parent in this scenario. When parents are anticipating a baby, most of the time they're excited, right? They're excited for this, what this is going to look like. And they have a narrative in their head of what the delivery might be like, what the process going home is going to look like, what their family is going to look like. And those are usually like, you know, good feelings and joyful feelings. And then maybe prenatally, they find out your baby's got a heart condition or a brain condition or a bowel condition. So now the story's dramatically changed. So now there can be a grieving process or an anticipatory grief that's happening even with provided you, hey, we gave you all the information, we're going to prepare, but there's, it's still a very different narrative. Another scenario might be things are great right up to the delivery and then something happens tragically to the baby where the baby comes out and didn't get enough oxygen or good blood supply and now you're worried about death or brain injury. So that story, which was going great right up till when it wasn't, and now it's turned into a tragedy. Now their baby's in the ICU and they're in this environment where there's all these new people. They've got to check in at the front desk, get a badge to see their baby. They have to go into this room 
there's all this stuff they're not used to. There's alarms going off and their baby has a breathing tube in and wires and tubes and tape. And they're in this plastic box so they can't touch them. And then they're cautioned not to touch them to not stress the baby out. And then there's all these people that are brand new and they're speaking this medical jargon. That's such an overwhelming situation, right? And even after they get used to it, it's still hard because on a day-to-day basis, they have to still leave their home and go to the hospital. And maybe they've driven hours away and they've got stuff going on in their life. They've got a job they're worried about. They've got other kids they might be worried about. Maybe they have a grandfather or a parent who's sick. So they've got life's in session outside the NICU. And then they got the guilt of, do I leave my baby and go deal with some of this other stuff? Or what about the guilt of not being with my other children? So the parents, I think, can be in this really very stressful situation. And then they're getting news, which might be like your baby needs surgery or your baby has a brain bleed. So now they're dealing with this news of, well, is that, what does that mean for me right in the moment? Is my baby going to live or not? Or they saw their baby get, they had to breathe for the baby because the baby stopped breathing. And they're worried in that moment, is my baby going to die right now? And so the alarms are going off and there's 10 people around the bedside. So just the trauma that actually, I think, can cause mm. folks where there's like a PTSD from that. And then you couple that with like, when you give them some of this news, they're thinking now like, How is that affecting my son or daughter down the road? What does that mean? Are they going to be in a wheelchair? Can they walk? And and the doctors don't really know. They're giving me some bad news, but they can't. So uncertainty is not comforting, right? So I think they're left in this. So I think the parents, for me, can experience very significant levels of like grief, maybe from an immediate loss, but also even anticipatory for what things can look like. So I think one of the best tools we have in medicine is a chair. So you mm-hmm. sit down next to that parent, parents, family members, you give the message, I'm, I'm here to listen, like I'm sitting down, you've got my time. And you allow like conversation to happen to percolate up and you got to check in to see how they're doing. I've learned, I just was on service and I, I asked a number of parents when I'd be in the room with them, allow some conversation to happen, but then just say, how are you doing? Are you grieving? Are you okay? How are you coping? Grief and joy can exist at the same time, or grief and gratitude can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. So there can also be guilt, though, like, gosh, I'm feeling grief, but I know I should be grateful. And it's like, you can actually have both feelings. They can coexist. You can be thankful for your baby and glad, but also sad that things haven't turned out the way you anticipated, or you've gotten some really heavy news, or, you know, you're worried your baby's going to die. And so I think... Spending time with parents, asking how they're doing, getting some insight into what's going on with them and not assuming, not labeling, really just listening can be great for like supporting them. And then you get some insight into what they're dealing with. So then when you check on them again later, that conversation can continue from there. And so I think my assumption is most parents, regardless of the diagnosis, aren't too thrilled they're in the NICU. And so They want to be home. They want their child to be healthy. They want their child to thrive. And so you have to, with each one of them, acknowledge their situation, see how they're doing, what kind of support system do they have? How can you help them? I think that's a moment to be kind and to listen really well, I think, and hopefully just have some humble inquiry into how they're doing. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that point that you made again, because I think that's so important for us as providers that all it takes is a few seconds Mm -hmm. and to turn to the family and say, you know, how, how, how are you doing emotionally? Are you dealing with any things that you may think you're depressed? You're having a lot of anxiety. That is a very powerful moment and allows that family, if you ask it an open-ended question, allows that mom, that father to just tell you what they need help with and opens a whole new window 
for you to understand their experience, their story, what they're going through, and then to get the people involved that can help them in that situation if you can't. Let's talk real quickly about the people we work around. Let's just imagine a scenario where some baby we've been taking care of for several weeks has a code and passes or you have to remove support for whatever reason. And you've got that nurse who's been at the bedside day after day, week after week, and you've been on service for two weeks taking care of that baby and you've got your extensive team. How can we support each other in a situation like that? We need to support each other. And I think it's some of it's being thoughtful beyond yourself, like saying, well, gosh, how am I doing? But also who else has been involved? And I wonder how they're doing and go check in with them. Once again, don't make any assumptions. My guess is they are impacted and try and find a space where you can talk with them where it's, you can have a safe conversation and an open conversation. So your timing of that has to be right. You want to be intentional about it and genuine about it. And I think, you know, when you check in, sometimes there's going to be some tears you didn't anticipate, or maybe you did anticipate, but just like you'd support the family. I think we actually, we really have to support each other. We deal with a lot of stuff and particularly right now, I think in, we're all feeling like in society, there's just a lot going on. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of unrest. I mean, COVID has magnified that big time, you know, economic worries. There's so much going on. It feels like we're very divided in, in ways, but I think the hope is we're all on the same team in the hospital and we can really like, what's our focus? It's that baby and that family. We want to rally around them, but also support each other around that. And so I think some of that is just taking time to meet with people and check in with them. Most folks are really grateful when you do it. And I'm, I've been amazed how conversations can literally just open up. I, I wasn't even sure if they would respond or give me some insight. And sometimes it's like, wow. And they had other stuff going on. It's like a family member who was sick or a child who's sick or so-and-so committed suicide. So heavy, heavy stuff that you didn't even realize they were dealing with on top of this. And I think those are those made me so glad I took the time to just ask. And, you know, it's a reminder to continually do that. Look for those opportunities to say, like, how are you doing? And check in with people and, and you know, and build some trust so that they feel like they can turn to you and you can go to them. And so just to be, support each other. So what would you tell that, that physician or nurse as we're dealing with our emotions and grief and whatever way it comes out? How do we work through that? What are some things we can do to work through that? Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to come across prescriptive or like I'm the expert in this or judgmental. So that's a careful one to navigate. I do think you can ask. That's why you're on the show, though. You get yeah. to help us navigate it. <laughs> so, yeah. How how are they dealing? I mean, part of this question is how are you dealing with this or how are you coping? Yeah. It sounds really, really difficult. What are you doing? And, you know, I think you want people to find healthy ways to cope. Right. So some of that's having the right people just around them to listen and to spend time with them. But you, you really want it healthy. Like you don't want to be like, well, I've been drinking a lot more wine or, you know, doing stuff that's like, well, I get that to a degree, but like long-term, that's probably not going to help you, right? That might hurt you. And so mm -hmm. if that becomes your go-to, that's not going to be good for this person. So I think finding like, what are some healthy ways? And that can look different for different people. Some of that's listening to music. Some of it's going for a walk, going for a hike, writing about it. Finding some outlet that I think allows you to process through some of your emotion or get your mind in a different spot so it can bring it some kind of recovery. And I think that's important to just say, well, how are you dealing with that? And, and some folks, maybe they don't have, they haven't found that right thing. So they may need more than just a walk or some good music. They may need some counseling to help them through it. So that would be a gentle nudge in that direction to advise that, to say like, hey, maybe have you thought about this? Because 
sounds like this is really heavy stuff. I know I would need more than just a walk for that, you know? And I think that's where trying to genuinely care about people and be thoughtful enough to offer them some of those resources, which those are often available within a hospital setting, you know? And I think there's sometimes a stigma around that. So it's like, well, I don't want to admit that I have any issues or weaknesses. So you have to get past that as well. But I think for me, it starts with paying attention, listening, inquiring, having that relationship of trust, and then circling back too, not to say, well, I talked to them, they're good, or they weren't good, but I'm sure they're fine now. I'm sure they took that walk and they're all better. It's like, no, how are you doing? Which, you know, that's what we would need ourselves. So it's, I think we're all similar in that respect. You're absolutely correct, Ryan. I appreciate you taking the time to share with our audience today. Hope everyone in our audience has learned as much as I have from this great information that you've shared with us. I invite all of our listeners back next week as Ryan shares more on how he deals with grief personally and how we as providers can find our own ways to deal with grief. Thank you for listening to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance in Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you'd like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.